The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This is a podcast from Minute Media. In the fall each year we all congregate The mouth all gathered at the church of Pilgrim The scriptures reading from the book of Monson Our favorite verse, my God, a freshman Drunk and obnoxious, what children face Ain't nothing finer in the land Now the 3,000 of our best friends It's Saturday and that thing Welcome to the Saturday in Athens podcast. We're a Georgia Bulldogs show by dogs fans for dogs fans. I'm your host, Herschel Gurley, and we are joined today by one of our favorites. We've got UGA athletics history specialist Jason Hasty with us. As y'all know, Jason is a repeat guest, and there's a reason why he's the best. So, Jason, welcome back to the show. Thanks for hanging with us, brother. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Well, the listeners aren't aware, but Jason and I just shared our sorrows for about 15 minutes about the SEC title game. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to get all the bad energy out right jason you know it's nothing but positive energy from from here on that's it that's it well hey uh reason we got you hanging out today is you and i texted a little bit about coming on and a talking about george's history in the orange bowl which is interesting i think for a few different reasons and b talking about their history playing michigan which both are brief but i think both have interesting nuggets to them so, you know, no better person to have on to do that than you. So that's what we're going to do, man. I want to hear a little bit about the dogs in the Orange Bowl, which it's been, I guess now it's been, what, 60 years, 60, 61 years? 61 years, yeah. The last time was 1960, January 1, 1960. Um, and, and, yeah, you know, there's not a lot of history with, between us and with us in the Orange Bowl or between us and Michigan, but it is kind of interesting history. And, and, you know, the, the thing that really jumps out to me and, and not even really talking about 1960 is it's kind of a, a neat historical quirk. Um, this is actually the 80th season of our 80th anniversary of the first time we ever went to a bowl game. So the first time we ever went to a bowl game was was the 19, 1941 season. And that game was the Orange Bowl. So at a game that we haven't been to since 1960, it's just kind of a neat historical coincidence that we're back in it again on the 80th anniversary of our first ever bowl game, which was a win against TCU. Yeah, so that's that's the piece I thought was interesting is that Georgia's two and one and played TCU in the first game, mm-hmm. Texas in the second game, and then now conference mate Mizzou, not at the time, obviously. Um, but let's start with that that first one, in, uh, you know, January 1st of what was it 42 41 season but 42 orange bowl right yeah 41 season 42 orange bowl and so georgia scored a lot of points that day (laughs) you know we actually scored so many points in the first half that the story goes that we were worn out in the second half and almost let tcu come back on us Uh, (laughs) we actually led 33 7 at halftime which 
back in the early forties, that was a, that was a blowout. Uh, teams just didn't score a lot uh, back in those days, but we really just piled it on. I think that you know, we had a great, great team at 41. Everybody remembers the 42 team because that's the championship year, but that 41 team was outstanding and, and maybe even deeper than that 42 team. Um, they had a kind of a couple of fluky losses, but ended up in the Orange Bowl, which was our first ever bowl game. So I think the team was just, I mean, I think they were excited to be in Miami. They were excited to be in a bowl game finally, and they just poured it on. Uh, but Frank Sinkwich dominated that game. He had uh, 22 rushes for 139 yards and went 9 of 13, passing for 240 yards. I mean, if we do that today, that's a dominating performance. You're all over ESPN if you do that today. But back in 1941, 42, that was almost unheard of and really put him in the driver's seat for All-American honors in 42 and the Heisman in 42. He was like Kyler Murray. Yeah, he really was. I mean, <laughs> you could stop him. I mean, if you stopped him passing, he'd run on you. If you stopped him running, he'd pass on you. I, I thought that was the interesting part about this team is, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of ways the sport hasn't changed from the fact that there's a runway for great teams mm-hmm. and this team precedes the team that ends up winning the national title and plays in the Rose bowl and, and all those things while we're in that era, the sequence and trippy era, I want to, I want to drop a history fact on you that you probably already know, but maybe our listeners don't know. Sure. Do you know what is interesting and notable about the Rose Bowl that was played that year in I do. I do. And it's an interesting one. Why don't you go ahead? So until last year, it was the only Rose Bowl not to be played in Pasadena. And the reason for that is in December of 41, Pearl Harbor was bombed by the Japanese. And there were very, very legitimate security concerns by the United States government that the Japanese would attack the coast and that they would target events with big populations and big gatherings of people. No more notable event for that on the West Coast than the Rose Bowl, January 1, 1942. So Rose Bowl officials made the decision to transfer the location of the game, and one of the teams playing in the game that year volunteered to host it, and that team was the Duke Blue Devils. So they played that game in Durham, North Carolina, had the Rose Bowl parade in downtown Durham, uh, and I believe they played Oregon State that year, if I'm I right. Think I think did, Oregon yeah. State came yeah. trained across country to play there. Uh, but I always love that nugget that that was the first one. And then obviously the game, first game that was back at the Rose Bowl after that, the dogs played in. So I just think there's some neat symmetry and history to that. Um, and then obviously last year they had to play the Rose Bowl uh, at the, I'm doing air quotes, at the Cotton Bowl <laughs> at Jerry Jones Stadium um, for the for the, for the semi but. You know, obviously that was different circumstance as well, but that's one of my favorite bowl game facts. You know, and it really is, there was a legitimate security concern on the West Coast at the time because not only had Pearl Harbor been bombed on December 7th, but there had been a couple of instances where Japanese submarines had actually shelled uh, oil refineries and some other installations uh, around Los Angeles and San Francisco. So there was a real concern that that many people uh, gathered together could be a target for an air raid or some sort of uh, some sort of naval attack. So that transferred it to the East Coast. And 
you know, it's uh, kind of a, the weird Rose Bowl that was in North Carolina. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. My, um, my two older brothers and my baby sister all went to KU, University mm-hmm. of Kansas. And uh, KU came east this year and played Duke in Durham. Sure. So they all met up and went and watched the game together. And I texted them. I said, I'm going to give you the best nugget of history you're going to have while you're at this stadium. They played the Rose Bowl there all the time. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I love that. Um, well, tell me, tell our listeners about the 49 game, the January 49 Rose Bowl when they played Texas. I know it was a loss, but you sent me a fantastic picture from, I believe, that game's program. There was a notable participant in that game. Yeah, we played Texas that year in 49. Uh, 48, uh, we won the SEC championship, uh, played in the Orange Bowl against Texas. And we, with the star, te- the Texas team that year was Tom Landry. Uh, of course, you know, we all think of Tom Landry as being the stoic man on the sideline at Texas Stadium with the nice suit and the fedora. Uh, but back in his playing days, he was a heck of a fullback. He was a great, great player. Uh, he's fullback. He punted a little bit. He played quarterback a little bit. I'm sure he played uh, defense as well. He was kind of all over the field. And, you know, unfortunately, we did get run all over by Tom Landry that day. So we did lose to Texas. But, you know, if you're going to lose, you can have, at least you can say you lost to Tom Landry. Um, that was that was kind of – and that was also our first ever bowl loss. Uh, we'd been to – the Rose Bowl, we'd been to a couple of the bowls, but that was the first time we'd ever lost a bowl game was to Texas in the Orange Bowl. I want to peel back to what you said, too, about George's first bowl appearance mm-hmm. being at the Orange Bowl. And for, for the listeners that maybe aren't as interested in the history of college football, sure, it's not the bowl scene that we have now where there's 44 bowl games and everybody and their mama gets to go to a bowl it was a lot different landscape in the 40s. Could you expound on that a little bit and explain that? Absolutely. It was a totally different landscape. And, and when you say that Georgia's first bowl game was 41, sometimes you get a, an odd look like, well, were we just really bad for like 50 years and didn't go to a bowl game? No, there just weren't that many bowl games. The Rose Bowl uh, was the first. And then you had the, uh, and I'm probably getting the order wrong, but the sugar and the orange and the cotton came along and then the Sun Bowl. And those were basically it for postseason bowl games. And you had some conference tie-ins, even though some of the bowls refused to have a tie-in because they just wanted to put two great teams against each other. So it was not uncommon at all. In fact, it was very uncommon that you got to go to a bowl game. There were a few few seasons when we were close to going to a bowl. Uh, 1927, for example, if uh, we went into the Georgia Tech game undefeated and with a Rose Bowl berth on the line. Uh, Tech, you know, Tech won. There have long been accusations that they watered down the field, slower running backs. Uh, that spurred the construction of Sanford Stadium, but in the immediate after fact, it was it kept us out of the Rose Bowl. Um, so we just didn't really have a chance necessarily to go to a bowl game. There just weren't, there wasn't a bowl game in every other city like there is now. The other thing about bowl games is that they were conceived of very differently back in those days. Now, when you think of a bowl game, you think it's a football game and you go for a weekend, you have some fun, you go to the game, you go home. You know, when I, when I listed out where the bowl games originated, um, they're all in the Sun Belt and all the West Coast. 
all places where people could go in the wintertime when it's cold in the rest of the country, even though Dallas gets cold sometimes in the, in the winter. And they were really exhibitions for the local communities as much as they were exhibitions for the football teams that were playing in the games. So bowl games would have, for example, they would have other sporting events tied into them. They would have golf tournaments or tennis tournaments. They would have basketball tournaments. They would have cultural events tied into them, special symphony orchestra, uh, uh, symphony orchestra concerts or uh, opera presentations, opera concerts. Uh, they would have fashion shows featuring local clothing from designers or local stores. And so it was really more of a showcase for the local community and the businesses in those communities than it was just a sporting event. It was a case of saying, hey, look at us. It's warm here in the winter. You can do business here. You can come here for vacation. And yeah, we're having this football game, but it's uh, there's a lot more to it than just that. And that's an aspect of bowl games that we've really lost since World War II. Now, like I said, a bowl game is just a bowl game. You know, maybe there's a parade attached to it, but that's usually about it. So there weren't that many bowl games, and teams didn't really necessarily have a chance to go very often, even when they had a great season. And there were certainly years when Georgia had great seasons and just didn't have a bowl. No one even thought about missing out on a bowl because it just was so unusual. So 41 came along, and, and we, you know, that was kind of a – it was a little bit unusual that we went to the, a bowl game of that magnitude then, but we did, and – uh, that was that was our first. So the last Orange Bowl the Dogs played in was January 1st, 1960, and they played Mizzou. Tighter mm-hmm. game, notable for a couple reasons. Number one, for who played quarterback for the Dogs, the great Fran yep. Tarkenton, uh, who had a good day that day. I think he had two touchdown passes. Yep. Um, and it was also Coach Butt's final bowl game that he coached right before his final season, but they didn't go to a bowl his final season. So that was the final bowl game that he ever coached. And also, too, I tried looking up the pictures, Jason, but tell me this, too. Didn't they also wear the silver t- silver helmets that day? They did. They wore the silver helmets. Um, and also, it was our first bowl win since the uh, Sugar Bowl at the end of the 46th season. So we had gone uh, quite a while in a, in a bowl drought. We didn't go to the bowls, go to many bowls in the 50s because we were not, not that great during that time. But uh, it, it had been quite a while since we'd won a bowl game. And, yeah, it was a tight game, 14 to nothing. Uh, Fran Tarkenton started at quarterback. He tossed a couple of touchdowns. Charlie Britt uh, started on defense. Uh, He uh, pulled in a couple of interceptions. It was kind of the Tarkenton-Britt show. I mean, they really dominated on both sides of the ball. Uh, And we beat uh, Missouri. That was also our very first uh, bowl game against an integrated opponent. Uh, Missouri was integrated. We had never played an integrated bowl game before. So it's kind of a, a historical footnote for that as well. But yeah, I we did not we know were, that. Yeah. <clears throat> and That's part cool. of that plays into we just didn't go to bowls that often in the 50s. And Missouri was not a Southern team. And so they were integrated. Uh, and so that was our, our very first bowl game. There was no real controversy about it at all. Uh, no one seemed to raise a fuss about us playing an integrated or an integrated game during a time when segregation was still very much in force. Uh, but you know, that was that was the case. But yeah, we wore the old silver helmets, um, red jerseys, silver helmets, silver britches, the classic pre-Dooley Georgia uniform. 
And that was, that was what we wore. I, I really, really want them to get with Nike and do some type of throwback that involves that. I don't know when it becomes appropriate to do it. Maybe, maybe 75th anniversary of the, the 42 team or something like that. That or seems about right. Some, I don't know, some fun reason yeah. where you could have some callback to history or whatever it may be. But, man, I just think that'd be cool. And it's not like it's, it's outside of what we used to do, right? Like, I, I just, it's not like it was some one year flash in the pan. Like they, I don't know. No. It's just interesting. For like, for like 20 years, that was our uniform. Yep. I mean, that was, that was it. All right. I want to take you on two tangents off of this. Sure the first thing. one is most people will probably lose a bar bet if you asked them this, but reading on Coach Butts got me thinking. I bet most people would not know who the coach was between Coach Butts and Coach Dooley. Most people think we went straight from Butts to Dooley. Yeah. But it was. But, but we did not. There was what, three year gap? Johnny Griffith was there three years. Is that right? Three years, Johnny Griffith. So I have to have you talk about this because I, it's another thing I don't think the casual dog fan knows enough about. But tell us about the Johnny Griffith, Wally Butts, Bear Bryant, and the Saturday Evening Post story. Oh, goodness. See, that's a podcast <laughs> all in and of itself. That's a, that's a multi-parter. Um, so the, the, basic, the basic story is that Wally Butts resigned as our head football coach after the 1960 season. We won the SEC championship in 59, won the, won the Orange Bowl. Uh, the 1960 season was not great, and he resigned as head football coach at the end of that season, but he was retained as athletic director. We hired Johnny Griffith, who had been a coach on our staff, uh, to coach. And there was tension in, in that relationship, as you, as you might imagine there would be uh, if you resigned from a position and then still had to supervise someone who took your job. That was, there was tension. Yeah. <laughs> Bear Bryant had taken over Alabama uh, in the late 50s. Gosh, I forget the year. Was it 58? I think 57, 58, somewhere in there. I'm not an Alabama historian. I'm sure they have plenty. Um, (laughs) So Butts and Bryant went back a long ways. They're friends. Uh, A lot of people don't know this, but Bear uh, Bear Bryant coached in Athens for one year. Mm -hmm. He was not a Georgia coach. He coached the... Naval pre-flight training school football team for one year. Uh, Even a lot of Alabama historians, Alabama people don't realize that he had a year here in Athens. And he actually, when he was here, he actually lived around the corner from Wally Butts and his family. So they knew each other. They'd gone back years. Um, When Butts was at Kentucky or when Bryant was at Kentucky, the Butts family would stay with the Bryants when we went up there to play. Kentucky, which, you know, you think about that now, that's not going to happen. Kirby's not staying with Dan Mullen and his family when we play. Right. Play but, Florida. but that was common then. Absolutely common. <laughs> and it was, it was really, that was just kind of what people did. It was a very tight knit fraternity. Most of those coaches knew each other really well. Their families knew each other. And so they would just, they would spend time with it, with each other and socialize. Mm-hmm. Um, Frank Leahy, Notre Dame's coach, would come down here to Athens in the offseason and stay with the Butts family. And, and they would stay up all night and talk football. You know, it was just not, it was a common. So, 
So 62, uh, we were, and, and I don't want to run down Georgia football at all, uh, but the, the late, the 50s and the early 60s were, were really bad years for us. Um, they had, we had some great players, some memorable moments, but overall there were, they were just bad years for us. And the Earl, the Johnny Griffith years for a lot of reasons were especially not, not good. We just weren't competitive. Um, the fan base had abandoned us. Uh, it was hard for us to fill Sanford stadium. Uh, and it was just kind of a bleak time. 62, um, some allegations were made by an insurance salesman who alleged that he overheard a phone conversation between Bear Bryant and Wally Butts. Bear Bryant was alleged to have been in his office in Tuscaloosa. Butts was alleged to have been in his office here, where Butts and Bryant were exchanging information to fix the Georgia-Alabama game in 62. The thing is, there was no reason for them to fix it. Alabama was going to win. They could have named their score. They had some guy named Joe Namath, the quarterback. I mean, he was all right. He was okay. Nobody ever heard from him again. You know, never did anything. Uh, and, and Alabama, they just had a great team there. And, and we were really struggling to, to beat anyone. I mean, if it, it's hard for a lot of contemporary Georgia fans to realize this, but at this point, we were really more on the level of like a Vanderbilt uh, than what we are now. And that's hard to believe, but at that point in history, it was true. So the allegation was made. Um, it got to a, and this gentleman, this insurance salesman, uh, George Burnett, uh, took notes on, on the conversation that he overheard. This, he eventually passed them to a lawyer who passed them to uh, the Saturday Evening Post. The Saturday Evening Post had been a very venerable uh, institution in American life for many years, but it had fallen in hard times and was really seen as kind of a stodgy kind of publication for, for older folks. It was kind of the, the TV guide, the WARP guide for this era. <laughs> and it was trying to refresh its image and get into more scandalous storytelling. So they published a story about this football fix. Butts and Bryant sued. Um, they, they sued Curtis Publishing, who was the, uh, the publisher of Saturday Week Post. They actually won the settlement. Bryant settled out of court. Um, Bryant, uh, he didn't want to go through the full trial. Uh, he settled out of court uh, for a fairly substantial sum of money. But the main allegations were against Wally Butts. And so he really had to go through the full trial to clear his name. He was exonerated. Uh, this, and he won, uh, a, gosh, the, the figure escapes me. It was like a, a seven-figure settlement, which in 63, which is when it came down. A lot of money. A huge kind of money. And that, that eventually got whittled down some and then lawyer's fees and, and all that. But uh, he ended up winning a fairly substantial amount of money. Uh, the case, though, kind of lived on, and it eventually went to the Supreme Court. And basically the case hinged on, and I'm not a lawyer, so I, you know, don't take legal advice from me, but the, the uh, <laughs> take, take football history advice. Not legal. 
the case hinged on the definition of Butts and Bryant as public figures and whether or not they, as public figures, could sue for defamation of character. And before this, public figures had really been defined as politicians. This case redefined what a public figure is and whether or not these people can sue for damages to their reputation. And eventually went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sided in favor of Butts. And that is still on the books. That's legal precedent now. Uh, the Butts, the Butts uh, Saturday Week Post scandal actually ended up changing American law in, in its own way. So that's a very thumbnail sketch of this scandal. There's a <laughs> lot more to it. Uh, it's a really fascinating scandal because you have motivations, some good, some bad on all sides. Uh, it's it's like the, the, the movie Rashomon where everyone, uh, people are talking about a crime and everyone has a different perspective on the crime and no one can agree on what the crime actually, what actually happened because no two people's points of view ever really match up. And so that's kind of what this case was like at its, at its heart is everyone kind of had a grudge against each other. Everyone kind of had history with each other and everyone viewed this differently. So it's a fascinating case. Uh, it really truthfully is. And it's something that no matter how many times I've gone back and, and looked over it, it's, there's always something new to bring out. There's always something more in there. And I'm also trying to be really careful to not make this like a six-hour interview about the Buzz Bryant case. <laughs> oh, we're going to have to do a breakdown of it. Well, and I think the, the Johnny Griffith's, I guess, interesting piece of it is he yeah. kind of had one of the damning quotes from the article, right? Because he said something along the lines of, oh, I never had a chance or something he, along he those lines. He was, he was alleged, and that was kind of one of the key moments in the trial. He was alleged in this article to have said, I never had a chance. But he never said that. He never said that. And he went on the stand and, and swore an oath that I did, I did not say that. Uh, and the people he was alleged to have said it to uh, also testified that he never had said it. There were a lot of things in the article that were almost fiction or just outright fiction. So it's, but there were a lot of things that were not necessarily fiction. Right. Uh, but the Johnny Griffith thing, and I feel, I, I always feel bad for Johnny Griffith because he, he was in a bad situation. He yeah. was in a very, he was in a tough situation where we were really trying to rebuild and that's hard to do. Yep. Um, it's hard to do in any era, uh, but especially in an era where recruiting is very limited and there's maybe not a lot of fan support, you know, your, your program has a negative uh, kind of perception, you know, people perceive it negatively. Um, and then you have this scandal kind of hanging on top of you uh, for over a year. Um, and that's so. It, it, I, I and I do feel bad for Johnny Griffith because he he was he was a good coach, and he it wasn't like he was a bad coach. He was just in a bad circumstance, and he had good players. A lot of the players he brought into the system in '64 and '65 won for Coach Dooley, so they were they were really the the foundation of what Coach Dooley had was able to build when he came in. And correct me if I'm wrong on this too, but Johnny Griffith, State of Georgia Hall of Fame, right? Sports Hall of Fame. I'm pretty sure he is. If I'm not mistaken, he is. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's not like he was. Yeah. Not some parachute. Georgia College. He was a scout. He was an assistant coach. He was just a career coach. 
Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't like he was just somebody we brought it off the street. All right. That was my first thing. My second right. thing from the 60 game I want to go on a tangent with you on is I sent a text out to some friends of mine, friends and family members, maybe a year ago. And I said, send me who you think the five most famous, or maybe I only said three, three most famous Georgia players in history are. Okay. And like, it was like 10 people mm-hmm. and zero, zero had Fran Tarkenton on that list. Do you think it's shocking that he is not, I find it shocking that he is not as synonymous with the university of Georgia and Georgia football, as I would expect him to be given the illustrious hall of fame NFL career he had. Right. And also how he was a different breed of player in that, that time frame of college football. He was very, Archie Manning like and how mm-hmm. he played the game, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It just shocked me. Is that I mean, are, are you caught off? Like, does that shock you that that he's not one of the more prominent figures, the one people go, because look, you asked me like Herschel Walker, right? Well, so in my brain, because of his pro legacy and because he was a quarterback and played at Georgia, Fran Tarkenton, you think, would be this easy roll off the tongue. Oh yeah, Fran Target. But it's just not one people talk about, I feel like. You know, and, and I agree. It's yes and no. I, I do agree. It is it is a little more shocking that people don't rem, don't know his name or know his accomplishments or associate with him with Georgia. Um, I'm not surprised because what, what I see if, for, and, and this is because of what I do. I, I ended up talking you know, lots of people about Georgia history. And from my experience, people really see sports in their lifetimes or within just a brief period before they were born. Mm-hmm. So if I'm 40, 46 years old. So if you ask me, well, I'm not the person to ask because I'm just not. <laughs> um, my, my answer is hey, you, you, you're not good for this hypothetical. <laughs> no, I'm not this good. But I think if you were to ask, you know, somebody in the streets, like who are the three most famous Georgia football players ever? I think Herschel would probably be 99%, you know, number one. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think you'd get some combination of David Pollack, Todd Gurley. Uh, you know, you'd get some folks with Roquan Smith. Um you know, maybe a few others, but mostly from 80 to now, you know, you might get some Champ Bailey or Heinz Ward. Yep. Uh, you might get some Eric Zire in there as well. But I think you'd pretty much, Matt, Matt Stafford, uh, no Sean. I think pretty much from early 80s to now is what people would think of. So I think that the one thing that really with Hertz Rand Harkenton's perception amongst current fans is just the the time frame when he played it was just so far away and so far removed from where we are now I, I don't think that a lot of people really think about about figures from that era you, you think about the number of people who don't really know who theron sap is one of our right. four retired the drought breaker with drought breaker yeah. uh, he was a great player and aside from that one play I and mean, theron sap was a heck of a good player uh, but people don't really necessarily think about him because the time frame is so far removed. Yep. And I think even with Sinkwich and Trippy, Mr. Trippy being a little different because he's still with us. Right. He, right. You know, just turned a hundred years old yesterday. Um, but people maybe know the name, but they don't know the accomplishments. 
Yeah. You know, if I if I said, well, you know, we had a player who rushed 22 times for 139 yards, what nine of 12 for nine of 13 for 200 yards passing, they must think, man, you know, who was that? Was that like, you know, somebody recent? Like, no, that was that was Frank Sinkwich, right? Back in 41. So I think it's just it's the the distance we find ourselves from that time period is a lot of it. People, the names just tend to fade, and even though they're great. It's un- it's unfortunate. I think I think that's a great point, and I think too it makes Herschel's legend even more impressive. Yeah, because we're getting to the point now where I mean we're forty years removed essentially from his playing days, and I do think a piece of that is there is more more of an abundance of TV footage of Herschel, mm-hmm. so even younger folks can conceptualize and see with their own two eyes how dominant he was and what a force yeah. he was. And I do think that dings, no doubt, Fran Tarkenton, but then obviously like Frank Sinkwich and Charlie Trippi and all these players because you can't with your own two eyes see it. So mm-hmm. it's hard for people, I think, then to conceptualize like, oh, they were great. Whereas they can look at Herschel and go, like, that dude just looks different, you know? Yeah. And um, so, but I do find that interesting, but I think you're right. I think he's the cutoff. I think he's the last guy where people go, oh, yeah, Herschel's top four. You know, he, he's on the Mount Rushmore Georgia players. And you don't really hear guys from before that. That's a good point. Yeah. And I think if you do hear from before that, it's from older fans or yeah. people who really have an interest in our history or have maybe family legacy uh, ties yeah. to UGA, where they've heard these stories about, about Trippy or Sequich or, or Tarkenton or, or some of these other guys. Or gosh, you know, Bill Stanfield, Jake Scott, you know, all, all these great yep. players from that era who today don't really get mentioned as much, but when you go back and look at them, they were just huge stars in their own time or just, just wonderful talents who come through the program. And I think it, it's partly, you know, it's so, like you've said, you, you, it's easier now to put eyeballs on someone and the lack of TV coverage before gosh, the mid eighties really hurts a lot of these players because now that those films, especially are available on YouTube, you know, you mm-hmm. can go look at clips on YouTube. Yep. Uh, and, and see players in their prime, uh, which, you know, if you can go look at tri- clips of Charlie Trippi, you know, like you said, he just looks different on the field, yep. just like Herschel looked different. And Tarkenton as well. When he threw the ball, it looks like a modern NFL quarterback throwing the ball, not just some guy chucking it down the field and hoping for the best. He was he was a different kind of talent. Well, I think the interesting part and kind of the cool synergy about Fran Tarkenton's story is he went to Athens High School. Like, <laughs> you know, he was he was in town. Is I'm pretty sure his daddy was a Methodist minister because I know he was born in Richmond, Virginia, and spent some of his childhood in D.C. And so they kind of went where where he was going to go preach, mm-hmm. and yeah, his father that, was that's what, that's what led him to Athens. And I think that's the neat part of it too, right? Is you got a kid that played high school ball in Athens, and then goes and plays quarterback at the University of Georgia, and does so in a dynamic way. It's just, it's interesting, but I, I think, I think your point's valid. I think it is a reference point for the giver of the list. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's a great point because my list would be skewed for sure to probably players that are more in my age bracket. Yeah. Not, not because I don't, I just, it's a weird thing, but I think you realize that the more you get older, the memories you have at certain ages, I feel like are more emblazoned than others. Mm-hmm. You yep. get older and this sounds like, you know, the old guy screaming at the clouds a little bit, but everything kind of just runs together. man. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? After a while, you know, I, I've gone to so many games over the years. And I could, when did that happen? Which game yeah. was that? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just, your memories fade. And, you you know, I was, I was talking about it with someone earlier today. The first game I ever went to was Georgia Clemson, 1986. I was 11 years old. It was a birthday present for my 11th birthday. My mother and I went. She got us a ticket. She's a huge Georgia fan. She taught me the game. She and I still talk about it, game after everyone. So we, uh, <laughs> she, she and I went. And, you know, I remember that day so well. I don't remember much of what happened in the field. But, and I certainly don't remember anything really or I don't have real memories of anything else that happened that season because I was a little kid. Yeah. You, know, you, you don't really pay that much attention. And so it's your reference point tends to be kind of your adult, your you know teenage years to your adult life. And memories fade, they blend together. Yeah. It's part of the, yeah. part of the problem of getting old. Well, like you, you brought up Roquan, which immediately in my brain was like, man, you know, for me, one of the more underrated guys, I think legacy wise, and this is just a, from watching him with my own two eyes, is Jarvis Jones. Oh, yeah. Like Jarvis Jones essentially won two cocktail parties by himself. I mean, I, look, we had, we had great, great teams. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But he was just a singular talent that could take over a football game. Mm-hmm. And when you think back in the Rolodex of Georgia players in your, in your mind's eye, how many guys can you say that about who singularly could affect the game? And he was one. You know, and so that's kind of where I start lists like that. I think that's why when you brought up Roquan, that's a great one, because that's what I think about when I think about him was this, the ability to singularly leave his footprint on the game. Right. Yeah. And, and Jarvis Jones is interesting. I mean, he was I mean, he like I said, I mean, he basically won two cocktails, part, cocktail parties for us mm-hmm. and such an amazing talent. And. You know, I remember him well. I mean, I still hold what he did and all, but I think for younger fans, he's a little bit, he's kind of past that cutoff point. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I, and I think it's, we also, I think, tend to celebrate less those that don't have some type of championship hardware, right? Which is why Roquan's always going to have to step up because they won an SEC title. They played in a national title game. And, you know, Jarvis Jones was on the 12 team, which was, painfully close but they didn't do it right so you know but i I do he's just one where i think about to your point about what i saw watching him from a fan experience and you're like this guy was a different type of dude yeah and and you think about we've had so many of those guys through the years and tim worley comes to mind yeah Mm -hmm. fantastic running back Heisman candidate for a while. I mean, just really an amazing running back. And you rarely hear, hear his name anymore mentioned in the list of great Georgia running backs. It was a shame. Like Jarvis Jones, you, you kind of don't hear him mentioned as much as you should in the list of great Georgia players, mm-hmm. uh, even though you should. And, you know, it's, it's, and I, I will say, Georgia fans have a real interest in the past. Yeah. And, and they really do have an interest in, the history of the program. And so I think that we're in a, a, a kind of an interesting position where these names, will be, you know, the, the memories of these players will be kept alive, even if they're not on the, the minds of every fan, they will be kept alive. And there will be people out there who still talk about them. And there will be people out there who still remember what they did and pass that along to younger generations, which is, which is so important. 
because that's how you build loyalty to a program. That's how you maintain loyalty to this. And I know you're a you're a more recent fan, if that if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, 03 was our first game. That 03. was my first experience and exposure yeah. to Georgia football. So all, all of the things I have learned, to your point, are, are things I've learned because of my interest in the program and love for the program. So that's a great point. And I think that it's it's important for those of us who've been fans for many years or for our whole lives to really make sure that, and gosh, 03 sounds so recent. I know it's not. Yeah, <laughs> it, does sound it, so is, recent. it is, though. Um, it was it was like ten years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but it's right. so important that we really pass along to newer fans what it means to to be a Georgia fan, uh, and and that includes the great names from the past. That includes the great moments from the past. That includes what you know, all these stories kind of that we've been talking about today. You know, yeah. the good and bad. Uh, and, yep. and that really helps to bind you to to the program and to your loyalty to, to Georgia. And that's just not just football, but baseball, basketball, tennis, swim and dive, whatever sport you follow here. We, we have that obligation to kind of pass those stories along. Well, to that point, you know, that was that was our main motivation for starting the Georgia Story interview series is we wanted there to be some type of audible record of folks being able to tell their story, right? Like one of the, one of the favorite ones we've done, which we talked to people about it, but Terry Hogue is one of our favorites. I mean, yeah, he, first of all, you talk about not having, I think the legacy amongst the common fan that he should, he was a phenomenal player. You're talking Heisman finalists on the defensive side of the football. I think he placed sixth in the Heisman balloting that year, which is higher than Jordan Davis placed this year, just to put that into perspective. I mean, he was um, a fantastic, fantastic player. Really, really great player. And you talk about loves the University of Georgia. I mean, Texas kid and came to Georgia, same class as Herschel Walker. And he like self-deprecatingly tells the story. Well, they brought me in because they needed to they needed to ensure that the GPA was going to be high enough for the class, that I was going to pass all my classes and they wouldn't <laughs> have to worry about me. <laughs> That's not far from the truth, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, he was really smart guy. I think he majored in like biology or chemistry or something. Like his, his intention was to come to Georgia and then go to med school. Mm-hmm. That's what he was going to do. And then, you know, just went and played the NFL and won a Super Bowl. And <laughs> so, yeah. But he was great. Yeah, he's, really I mean, great. he was, and, and he was, gosh, he was so good. You know, it was the old, the old, always the joke that you know Herschel was the number one recruit in the nation, and Terry Hogue was the you know the, the very last recruit in the nation. Yeah, and, and he'll I mean, tell you that. Yeah, he he blocked a field goal in the Sugar Bowl. We wouldn't have yep. won that game without him. Yeah, uh, he he told a beautiful story about the genesis of that, about how all that came to be. Because I didn't know this. Because when you consume his story from the outside. What you consume is that as a you know as a freshman he's special team standout and blocks kick in the Sugar Bowl. Well, sure. the reality was he dressed for like two games his freshman yeah. year yeah. and didn't travel. I don't think anywhere. And so Except he like world. yeah he broke up talking about it. He's like I'm going to tell you the story like when Coach Dooley told the team that I was going to New Orleans for the Sugar Bowl. And man, it was it was so cool. And I think that's the other beauty of having a rooting interest and being a fan of a team in the college space is the connection is so different 
amongst the people that played there because it's it just means so much to them you know it's it's these formational years in your life and that's been the neat part is everybody we talk to just kind of hearing their affinity for not just playing ball going to Georgia but what it's done for them from like a life perspective you know and I know you feel that way too and so like I don't know it's that has been one of the cooler things and and I think to your point one of the beauties of kind of sustaining and preserving that history well I think when well with the reason one of the main ways excuse me that college differs from the pros is you have this kind of multi-generational connection to the program yeah and not only to the program but to the school and to the town Mm -hmm. and even if you are if you're an older person and have been a fan since the the 50s or 60s or or you're getting this is your very first year at UGA man you're excited about this new school you're excited about the program and you've just taken up the team to be a fan because you're here and why not yeah, you can still be part of that. There's, there's no, there should never be a barrier to entry. Uh, there should never be a gatekeeper for people who want to be a fan, because it is, it is something that is very organic. It grows. It's you connect to it in your own way, and colleges are are unique like that. Um, yeah, and not just UGA, but I mean across the board, all, all colleges, people who who support those colleges. Uh, or that's it's what separates it from professional teams where you're really rooting for a corporation. Yeah, uh, you know it's it's like well I, I like Coca Cola so I'm just going to drink Coke products. Or right. I like the Falcons so I'm just going to be a Falcons fan. And and not to denigrate either of them, but it's it's a different way of connecting to them than it is connecting to to a college sports team. Yeah, I think college fandom has has a visceral level to it yeah that, I think that's exactly a great way of putting it yeah pro fandom can just i mean look pro fans are no doubt fanatical right oh, yeah. but Absolutely. it's it's a different touch point i feel like like for example you would never just make a trip to the city that your favorite team plays in in the off season just because that's where your favorite team plays right like no. oh yeah I, i'm a I'm a Falcons fan. I'm going to go to Atlanta in March, right? Like that you wouldn't make that pilgrimage. Whereas you'd go to Athens any time of year because you love the university of Georgia and you love classic city. Right. So it's just a, it's a different thing. You're not going to stand outside Mercedes Benz and go, yep, there it is. Yeah. Whereas you will stand in front of Sanford and go, man, I remember my mother and I going here for my first game or man, I, I was here in college you know, I'm going to take my significant other child, whomever, to, to introduce them to this. It's a different. Yep. I think the only the only pro experience that would probably relate to that, the Packers, is being a Green, yeah, being a Green yeah. Bay fan. Yeah, I, fan. I I do think that's different because I think that it's it's weird, but they operate like a college team almost mm-hmm. uh, the way the town has adopted that the way people speak about going to green Bay. Yeah. I think there's truth. To that. I also think Lambeau is almost, it's got college stadium vibes. Yeah. You know? it's, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's the only pro stadium. I really have any desire to make a road trip to see Same. You know, just, just because just so I can say that I've seen it. 
Whereas it, that's really more something you do for a college game. My dad's been a wonderful he, museum there. He, he said it's magical, like yeah. just a magical experience start to finish. And he said the town's part of the whole thing, you know, mm-hmm. like being in Green Bay. So, yeah, I think that's cool. All right. I want to talk to you briefly here about the Michigan connections. Then I'll get you out of here. Sure. So two games historically against the Wolverines, one in 1957 and one in 1965. So one with coach Butts as the head coach. And then once with coach Dooley as the head coach and both played in Ann Arbor at the big house. So they've they've never been to the classic city and played at Sanford. Uh, They lost the first one. They got shut out 26, nothing with coach Butts, but then coach Dooley went back and they returned the favor and shut the Wolverines out and won 15, nothing. So tell us, Oh, 15-7. Oh, wow. I must have wrote that down wrong. So tell us anything notable about those two games and things we should take away from those things as Georgia fans. You know, kind of a weird historical footnote to the first game. Uh, The first game that we played against Michigan in 57 was the day the Russians launched Sputnik, uh, the first satellite. So just kind of a weird... I was going through the microfilm. I spent a lot of time going through microfilm, <laughs> which is not nearly as glamorous as it sounds. Um, it's like, oh, wow. So that was kind of a cool little connection. The front page of every paper was Sputnik and buried yeah. in the back was Georgia's playing Michigan. Uh, <laughs> you know, the 57 game, we were just, they were just a better team than us. Uh, in 57, we won three games um, all season. That was just a really, really rough season for us. Uh, we were on the road. We only had... Gosh, what one, three home games that year? No, two home oh, games wow. that year. Every other game was played on the road, so it was a it was a tough season for us. And we just they were the better team. Um, and we actually came home and turned right around and went to New Orleans to play Tulane after that. So no rest you, for the weary, man. No rest at all. Um, and traveling conditions in the fifties weren't nearly as luxurious as they are now. Right. The 65 game is interesting. You know, Georgia was not favored uh, to win that game. Uh, we were a lot smaller than, uh, than Michigan. Michigan was a huge team for that time. Uh, we had beaten Alabama that year on the famous flea flicker play. Uh, I think people maybe kind of thought it was a fluke. Dooley had one year under his belt. He's a good coach, but maybe he's, you know, maybe got a lucky win over Alabama but Michigan's going to put him back in his place. They led seven to six at halftime and we did shut them out in the second half. We just ran around them. We realized that we couldn't go through them, but they couldn't, they couldn't chase us. So they were too slow. And we were too fast. Uh, it was kind of an early example of sec speed <laughs> going up to yeah. the big 10. That's and right. so we just ran around them and, uh, and put it to them 15, you know, seven, it was, it was a good game. What's, what's interesting, though, is that when we got back here to Athens, we flew back into Athens, and there were about 10,000 people at the Athens airport waiting for the team. And downtown and campus exploded in excitement to the point where shopkeepers and you know stores just shut their doors and let everybody celebrate. And they wanted to go celebrate, too. So they wanted to celebrate, too. So... Uh, the police apparently were handing out just minimal tickets for cars that were overstuffed with students, but it was a, it was a celebration. Like we'd won the national title. Uh, and that was kind of, uh, that was kind of it. That was kind of the notable point about the 65 Michigan game was just how excited Athens was afterwards. Uh, really people thought we were going to be the number one team in the country after that, but we weren't. So. 
Well, hopefully there is a celebration similar to that the morning of January 1st after a great game on December 31st. Now, before we let you go, we're going to pin you down. Let's well, get a, let's get a game say, prediction. I, I do want to say one thing. So University of Michigan has a great sports archive, and they have an equivalent to me up there, a gentleman named Greg Kenny, nice guy. So it's, he's kind of one of the few – uh, the few people like me out there who are really doing sports archives in, yeah. in, in a serious way. So uh, he and I have been communicating uh, between see what we have in each other's archives uh, before this. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, maybe get together a little bit or something uh, friendly bet, of course. Oh, uh, that's uh, cool. So. Oh, man, but, I bet they've got a lot of cool stuff, too. Yeah, they, they have a really fantastic archive. They have a really yeah. fantastic sports archive. That's cool, man. That's really cool. Well, we're going to pin you down. Give All us right. a score prediction. Oh, no, no, no. I can't do a score predictions. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a not prognosticator. I don't prognosticate at all. I, if, if I give a score prediction, just assume that I'm wrong and go the other way. So, Let's ask it this way. What is your level of confidence in your alma mater heading into this game on a confident. scale of 1 to 10? Yeah, I feel confident. Probably about an 8 or 9. So yeah. maybe, maybe a nine. Yeah. We've, we've talked about this a lot. I think the, the takeaway for me is. And I'm from they, Julie Munson here. So there's always a level of pessimism. So. That's right. Uh, what they want to do offensively is what we are built to stop yeah. defensively. And for me, that's the crux of it is do those things play out like we think they're going to play out. Um, cause I think, look, Michigan has a great defense, two great pass rushers, obviously that Heisman finalist as, as one of their pass rushers, Aiden Hutchinson. I just feel like offensively, we have plenty of weapons and plenty of depth. We're going to score points. I'm not super worried about that. It's just, are we going to be able to do to Michigan what we did to everybody else, but Alabama that, and sure. I, I think schematically that matchup looks good for us, but. Who knows, man? We'll see. Uh, everything, everything is up in the air after what happened in Atlanta. <laughs> you know, I, I'm really just excited to be playing Michigan. I, I would love yeah. to see Michigan on our schedule. I'd love to do a home and home uh, with Michigan. Oh, it's, yeah. it's a great tradition up there. They have great university uh, and, you know, some of the best uniforms in college football. Oh, yeah. So I think it would be a lot of fun to go up and watch a game in the big house. And I think it would be a lot of fun for their fans to come down here and watch a game. Plus, man, I've heard that Ann Arbor's an A-plus college town. Yeah. Like, must visit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jason, you know we love having you on, brother. It's always a pleasure to talk dogs with you, and you know you have an open invitation. So we'll, uh, we'll have you back on. Hopefully, the dogs win here on the 31st, and maybe we'll have you back on to give us some history on Georgia-Alabama as we lead into that game. Because if we're going to play in the title game, I think we're going to try to do something like every day. So, yeah. Sure. Yeah. No, we can do yeah. that. There's a lot of rich history, and not just the last few years, but – a lot of history going back to the very earliest days. So yeah, we definitely do that. All right, Jason. Well, thank you for being so gracious with your time and with your stories and go dogs. Go dogs. Hey, George is better now.